0: Welcome to Copyright Clearance Air's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, October 7th, 2022. Today, as we do every week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albany's PW Senior Writer joins me again today. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. The National Book Foundation has announced the 2022 National Book Award finalists this week. The award ceremony is set to take place in person for the first time in three years. That's right. And yeah, that is the plan. The National Book Foundation
1: has announced its 2022 finalists for this year. The winner is going to be announced in person. Another sign that we are returning to some semblance of normal, Uh, the ceremony is going to be held on November 16th in New York City at Cipriani Wall Street. Uh, And, of course, the last time the National Book Foundation held its flagship awards event in Manhattan, Lisa Lucas was running the show. She is now at Pantheon, of course, as as, an executive editor, I believe. Ruth Dickey, of course, took the reins from Lisa Lucas in 2021. And while there were plans for an in-person ceremony last year, had to be called off at the last moment because we had a pretty major COVID-19 spike, as you might recall, and they had to go back to a virtual show. My colleague, John Marr, writes all about it on the PW site. You can read that story now. And Ruth Dickey even came by the PW offices for an interview. But I'll give you a bit of a spoiler if you haven't read John's piece yet. It's that, yeah, it's kind of a big deal to have the National Book Awards back in person. Now, there are going to be some minor changes to the program, but it certainly looks like it's going to be a great evening. And it is a big deal because, as Dickie acknowledged to John Marr, first of all, it's a flagship event for the for the book business. But also it brings in a pretty good amount of revenue, um, stuff that I think the National Book Foundation had a hard time replicating in this virtual environment. Of course, there will still be an online event, which is great news. I think the National Book Awards Ceremony – like many publishing events, reached a larger audience through the online component. And that looks like it's here to stay, even when we go back to Cipriani Wall Street for the event. And, you know, as I said, it's another sign that, you know, it's of that we're getting to some semblance of normal again. We're not, I hesitate to say we're post, you know, we're certainly not post-COVID-19. But I think we are in many places and certainly New York City post-pandemic, right? We have vaccines and therapeutics. The mask mandates are gone. And people are just sort of over the restrictions. And it sure seems to me that even if another spike was to come, there really is no going back at this point, that we're going to sort of march ahead. Uh, And while I think we definitely still have some issues to work out with how we approach COVID-19 at this point, particularly when it comes to back to work and publishing workers coming back into the office – I will say that I am happy to have life getting back to some semblance of normal, and I'm certainly happy to have the National Book Award Ceremony back in person.
0: So tell us who belongs to this new class of National Book Award finalists.
1: Yeah, so I'll spare you going over all the names and all the titles here. There's a full list on the Publishers Weekly site, so you can check that out. Um, It's a strong list, I'll say that, of works they were drawn from. And I'll give you a little bit of background on what, what came through this year. There were a total of 463 books submitted for the 2022 National Book Awards for Fiction and 607 books submitted for nonfiction. Five finalists for each were selected. Uh, And as I said, I won't run down the entire list, but I'll just tell you that no surprise, three of the five finalists in each category were published by an imprint of Penguin Random House. Uh, and three of the books, three of the 10 of the, the nonfiction and nonfiction, actually came from Viking. So a very strong showing from Viking this year indeed. And of course, there's more than just fiction and nonfiction. Finalists were also revealed in three other categories. Uh, there were 260 books submitted for the uh, National Book Award for Poetry. Five finalists there. Five finalists for Translated Literature that came from, I think, 146. And there were five finalists for the National Book Award for Young People's Literature out of 296 titles that were submitted. And I think one other notable thing for this year's National Book Awards is that Tracy D. Hall, who, of course, is the executive director of the American Library Association, is going to be the recipient of the 2022 Literarian Award for Outstanding Service to the American Literary Community. And I think Tracy Hall's honor is a very welcome an important statement. This is the second year in a row that a librarian has won that honor. And our listeners will recall that last year, the award went to Nancy Pearl, who incidentally was the first librarian to win the award in its history. So I don't think this is an accident that we're seeing librarians winning that award two years in a row. Uh, In a statement announcing Hall's award, David Steinberger, who's the chair of the board of directors, of the National Book Foundation, said that libraries are, and I'll quote him here, essential for all readers. They are spaces of learning and community whose importance has only been amplified by the pandemic and the ever-increasing tensions of resource equity. Uh, And he added that in the nature of misinformation, Hall's work and the work of libraries, of course, is more vital than ever. Tracy Hall, of course, is an African-American woman who served in a number of librarian jobs. She took the helm of executive director at the ALA in January of 2020. And she stepped into an organization that, you know, as I reported, it's the oldest and largest library association in the world. But when she stepped in, it was in the middle of a modernization effort and facing a fiscal disaster. And just as she started to like get going on those issues, of course, the unprecedented impact of the pandemic came along. So she's just starting, I think, to really sink her teeth into the job some two years later. Uh, and in the last year, I think she's done a great deal. She's made equitable access to information a key priority for the ALA. It's always been a key priority, but it's really out front now including for the incarcerated, which, you know, I think is very important. So, you know, this is just a really timely and important recognition. Congratulations to Tracy Hall and a special shout out to the National Book Foundation for keeping the library community in its focus at a time when libraries really need support.
0: Late last week, Andrew, Fight for the Future, a Boston-based advocacy group concerned with digital rights, released an open letter in support of libraries signed by more than 400 authors, including Neil Gaiman, Naomi Klein, and Chuck Wendig. The letter immediately drew responses from the Association of American Publishers and the Authors Guild.
1: Yeah, that's right. The letter dropped last week. And this week, uh, you know, we're still seeing a little bit of the backlash. But you know, I think we could talk more a little bit about its contents and the reaction than we could have last week uh, when it first dropped. And you know, I think we should probably start the discussion with, you know, the contents of the letter, and maybe a little bit of background. So our listeners should know that this is actually an effort that's been sort of months in the making, uh, both in terms of crafting the letter and in terms of garnering support, this according to officials at Fight for the Future. The letter itself makes its intentions known straight off the bat, and I'll read from it here. Uh, Quote, libraries are a fundamental collective good, the letter opens. It goes on to say that we, the undersigned authors, are disheartened by the recent attacks against libraries being made in our name by trade associations such as the Association of American Publishers and the Publishers Association, which, of course, is UK-based, undermining the traditional rights of libraries to own and preserve books, intimidating libraries with lawsuits, and smearing librarians. And the letter goes on to make three specific demands of publishers. And that is the first is to enshrine the right of libraries to own, preserve, and loan books on reasonable terms, regardless of format. And they write that it's past time to determine a path forward that is both fair to libraries and authors. The second point is to end lawsuits Aimed at intimidating libraries or diminishing their role in society. And as you might guess, this is the one that really drew (laughs) the most attention from the AAP and from the Authors Guild and other publishers and publisher associations. But Fight for the Future writes that the interests of libraries are the interests of the public, and that any author concerned with equity and with longevity for themselves and their fellow writers should know that libraries and publishers stand on the same side. And the last demand is the one that I found is really the one that's animating this campaign, in my reporting anyway. And that's that the letter demands that publishers put a stop to what Fight for the Future calls an industry-led smear campaign against librarians. And this is something that we've touched on briefly on the show, I think, for years. And that's how libraries have been characterized by industry associations, and in some cases by publishers, but mostly by industry associations, at least in the last couple of years, in what I think is a very questionable form. Uh, But I'll let the letter speak for itself on that. And the letter says, recent comments likening library advocates to mouthpieces for big tech are as tasteless as they are inaccurate. The letter goes on to state that as a last bastion of truth, privacy, and access to diverse voices, and as libraries' digital operations grow ever more essential to our society, their work – this is librarians' work – should be celebrated and not censured. Now, we should know that this letter drops in the middle of a very contentious copyright battle over the Internet Archives program to scan and lend uh, library books under an untested legal theory known as controlled digital uh, lending. Uh, That lawsuit is now being briefed for a potential summary judgment. And it also comes in the midst of a very litigious year, right, with the Association of American Publishers in February successfully suing to block a Maryland law that would have required publishers to offer commercially available ebook licenses to libraries on quote reasonable terms. And of course, critics of the Fight for the Future letter have seized on this point, that second point which says to end litigation. And I think they have a fair point here that this, you know, the litigation is clearly a, a big issue here. But also more broadly, I think that the letter from Fight for the Future reflects a very contentious decade in the library ebook market in which we've you know we've talked about it you know pretty much for the full eleven years that i've been a guest on your show chris and during the last eleven years librarians and library supporters have long complained of a developing licensed access market with unsustainable prices and restrictions that are keeping librarians from doing their traditional jobs of buying and owning and collecting and sharing books. Uh, And of course, publishers, on the other hand, are very concerned about the impact of digital lending on sales. So a, a lot to wrestle with there.
0: And what's your analysis of the responses to the letter?
1: surprised me most, maybe it hasn't surprised me, but maybe what's even perhaps disappointed me a little bit is that the critics of the letter don't really acknowledge most of the letter's contents. You know, the key points being in my you know estimation to enshrine the ability of libraries to own content and build collections, because if we take care of that, all the rest of the problems sort of fade away. Uh, and the other thing I think, you know, that the Fright for the Future letter really sort of brings out is the idea of the rhetoric that's being tossed around out there and like, you know, that needs to be toned down a little. Of course, it's the second point of the letter that the critics have really grabbed onto the point about uh, ending litigation that, you know, takes aim at libraries. And that's because, you know, the critics say the, the AAP and the Authors Guild suggest, at least, that that's what's really driving this letter, that it is basically an Internet Archive coordinated effort to influence authors and to sort of, according to the Authors Guild, mislead them. About this lawsuit that's going on. You know, the suggestion is literally, and I've seen this repeated in a few outlets in the media as well the suggestion is literally that all these authors, or most of the many of these authors anyway, who signed this uh, letter from Fight for the Future were sort of duped to support the Internet Archive under the guise of a broader, you know, support for libraries letter. And, you know, that Fight for the Futures, uh, at least according to the Authors Guild, is not independent. But is you know part of a tech industry cabal that's in league with the Internet Archive. Now, for the record, I know this group, Fight for the Future. I've known them for since the beginning. They are independent. You know, they are fairly small. They are not very well funded, but they are a very savvy, more than ten year old advocacy group that I first became familiar with uh, through their campaigns against the ill fated SOPA, uh, people legislation in twenty twelve, and for their robust defense of net neutrality rules. But I have to say to label that the group as a big tech ally is really absurd because Fight for the Future is, in fact, a very harsh critic of the tech industry and especially of the major tech firms. In fact, they're one of Google's worst nightmares right now because their biggest campaign at the moment is lobbying for antitrust action against the big tech firms and for more digital privacy rights. So to say that they are in league with big tech or trying to blunt efforts to regulate big tech is just simply not right. At the same time, Fight for the Future does back the Internet Archive in this copyright lawsuit. Now, that support doesn't make them an organ of the Internet Archive, but I think you know that it's fair to question you know where where their heart lies in all this. In July, the group issued a very strong statement of support for the Internet Archive in its copyright battle uh, with the publishers. So that, of course, has obviously and understandably been the focus of the critics and the response to this letter. The Authors Guild, for example, which has been aware of the campaign, apparently, and urging authors not to sign it for a few weeks now, issued a a statement saying that this actually is not about libraries, but about the Internet Archive's attempt to stretch fair use beyond the breaking point by scanning and lending library books, and it goes on to call them well, pirates, right? It says any website that scans millions of library books and lends them or makes them publicly available, that's a practice engaged in by ebook pirates, not by libraries. Again, I'm not sure that's true, but that is the position that the Authors Guild put out.
0: And final reply briefs for summary judgment are due for submission by week's end in this lawsuit against the Internet Archive brought by four book publishers. So, what do you think will be the practical impact of this letter writing campaign on the case?
1: Yeah, so you know, we can certainly talk about the final reply briefs in the IA case next week. I'm expecting them to come in at any point today, probably at the end of the day, though. As for my take on the campaign, well, I think I should probably be brief. And I want to stress that you know my opinions, that any opinions I express here are going to be my own. Actually, there's really only one thing that I really want to highlight here, which is something that I think is really sort of brought to the fore by the letter. I mentioned it before, and that's that the publishers, well, well, actually, really, the trade associations here that their rhetoric has been really running very hot, and I think is a little disappointing. And in the last few years, you can really see a more bellicose approach by the AAP and the Authors Guild in the library space in the digital library space. I should say, it really, sort of setting up, you know, what's going on in the digital library space is kind of a copyright moral panic. And I just don't think it needs to be this way. You know, I I think that there is a way to enable libraries to keep their traditional roles in the reading ecosystem while protecting authors and publishers' rights. Uh, As I said before, this is not some Gordian knot. It just recalls the two sides to get together and try a little good faith experimentation. I think that would be beneficial for everyone. But instead, what we've really sort of seen and what the, this letter from Fight for the Future really highlights is this really rough language suggesting that libraries are in league with big tech, which is wrong and dystopian. And hearing publishing leaders say this out loud is frankly a little silly, but you know that doesn't bother me so much as it, as it does that it sort of undermines libraries with the people who are inclined to dislike them anyway. And that's the book banners and the fake news crowd. And I absolutely agree with the Fight for the Future letter in this sense. You know, And I talked to some of the reps from Fight for the Future about this, that the rhetoric that's been coming from the AAP and from the Authors Guild regarding digital library stuff is excessive and dangerous. Because, you know, look, at the end of the day, the Internet Archive case is going to be decided in court. This case is not going to be dropped because some 400 authors – signed a letter, right? This is going on. And this campaign is going to have no impact on how Judge Codel rules in the Internet Archive case. That's all going to come from the arguments and all going to come from the filings. And I think there are good filings and good arguments on both sides. But I think the Authors Guild and the AAP really missed the point of this campaign if they dismiss it as some random tech allied group shilling for the Internet Archive. And they ascribe some nefarious motive to it. Because I'm in this space every day, paying attention to the library ebook space, and I've been here for more than a decade. And I've heard these very same complaints for years. So, you know, I really see this campaign as sort of a rebuke to the way the major publishers are talking about libraries in the digital space. Because libraries are essential institutions. And at a time when American institutions are being undermined, whether it's the FBI or public schools or elections or, of course, libraries it's a problem. Look, librarians and publishers can disagree. I'm not saying that we can't. And sure, sometimes the courts need to get involved. I get that. I think we all get that. But we are all invested in strong libraries and strong publishers and in authors being able to make a living. And I would hope that we can find a way to disagree and to resolve these disagreements in a way that doesn't undermine libraries.
0: Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program today. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on the next podcast from CCC, Publishing 2030, launched on Tuesday this week, is a one-year project to support and test early-stage ideas that will positively contribute to the publishing sector's sustainability and address industry concerns over climate change. Rachel Martin, co-founder of the Publishing 2030 Accelerator and Global Director of Sustainability at Elsevier, tells me more.
1: Nobody's going to get to net zero by themselves. We all kind of have to work together. Um, And recognition of that has been incredibly important. You know, in the lead up to COP26, it was um, a joint statement that was issued by, I think, the International Publishers Association alongside the key players. And it was the first time that everybody really crystallized that, yeah, we should put this on the agenda and that we have to really
0: work together for this. Publishing zeros in on net zero coming on the next CCC podcast. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Briskey of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm Christopher Kennealy. Thanks for listening to this Velocity of Content podcast from CCC.